This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on persistent depressive disorder. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Persistent depressive disorder is common and important. The lifetime prevalence is about 2% in men and 4% in women. Complications of this disorder include major depression, substance misuse, anxiety disorder, and sometimes suicide. To give us more details about this problem, we have on the line David Hellerstein, Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University Department of Psychiatry. And importantly, David is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So David, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is persistent depressive disorder? Uh, Sure, Uh, thanks for having me today, Kieran. Um, So persistent depressive disorder is a mood disorder and it's characterized by chronic and persistent depressive symptoms lasting two or more years. It requires two or more of, of six symptoms, poor appetite or overeating, insomnia or hypersomnia, low energy or fatigue, low self-esteem, poor concentration or indecisiveness, and feelings of hopelessness. And the person has to have had those feelings for two or more years uh, without sustained periods of, of remission. And they can't have other disorders like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia uh, that would better explain the condition. Okay, thank you. And how do you make the diagnosis? I guess the biggest first screen in in assessing a patient is, does the patient have a state of chronic uh, depressive symptoms? So do they they say, I'm always depressed or I've been depressed as long as I can remember? And that, or or they might have a score on a PHQ-9 that would be in perhaps the sub-threshold for major depression, but not significant uh, number. And then you really need to then uh, query the patient about the presence of persistence and chronicity of of symptoms. Okay, thank you. And how long would you be talking about in terms of timelines to reach the criteria of having persistent depressive disorder? Uh, Well, it's at least two years, but persistent depressive disorder is often under-recognized in clinical settings, whether primary care or specialty uh, psychiatric settings. And so oftentimes people present where they've had symptoms for a decade or even several decades before diagnosis. I wonder what's the differential diagnosis of this disorder? What else could be going on besides persistent depressive disorder? Certainly acute major depression can uh, present with all the same symptoms of, of persistent depression, but it tends to be obviously more severe in cross-section and shorter in duration. And in fact, because people with major depression uh, present in a more acutely disturbed state, clinicians often will uh, forget to ask about uh, persistence and chronicity of depression symptoms. Uh, But certainly substance abuse issues can can present with chronic dysphoria, personality disorder, diagnoses, people with, say, borderline personality. Also, people with bipolar disorder may present with uh, persistent depressive symptoms, and they they may have a persistent depressive condition, but its management is very different than that for unipolar persistent depressive disorder. Okay, thank you. And I wonder, have there been any recent advances 
in diagnosis or assessment of this condition? Well, the, the major advance was really when the DSM-5 came out, and it was published in 2013. And the DSM-5, published by the American Psychiatric Association, pulled together uh, several different diagnoses that had been uh, present since the days of DSM-3 in 1980. So dysthymic disorder, which is chronic low-grade depression, uh, chronic major depression, dysthymic disorder with superimposed major depression. There are three or four or five different conditions that were pulled together under the condition of the new, new diagnostic label, persistent depressive disorder. And I think that makes sense because those several different subtypes really have consistent underlying course, and uh, they vary by severity and little bits of, of kind of presentation, but they, they are likely to be manifestations of the same condition. And I wonder, can you tell me, what's the difference between persistent depressive disorder and dysthymic disorder? So dysthymic disorder is a uh, subtype of persistent depressive disorder. It was really subsumed under that larger umbrella condition. And persistent depressive disorder, as I mentioned, includes people who have chronic major depression, uh, which would be similar symptoms but more severe. Dysthymia, pure dysthymia, would be uh, suffered by people who, who don't meet criteria for, for, for full-blown major depression. So major depression requires five out of nine of the criteria uh, B in, in the DSM, but uh, dysthymia only requires two out of six. So there's, there's a less acute severity. But interestingly, people with dysthymia over the long course, even though they look, it's a paradox, they look like they have a mild disorder on a cross-sectional basis, but if you look at them over time on a longitudinal basis, their disorder is actually severe. So they have increased death, they have increased suicide rates, they have high health utilization, they have poor um, vocational functioning, they have impaired interpersonal relationships such as romantic and, and family relationships. So it's kind of a deceptive disorder, dysthymia, because it doesn't look that worrisome in the short run, and it's often ignored as a result in favor of more acute um, conditions that need more rapid management. Thank you very much. That That's really, really helpful. Still, the last question on diagnosis. What are the common pitfalls in diagnosis of persistent depressive disorder? So I, I would say that the first pitfall, for, it's really first and almost last, is being ignored. So because the the uh, uh, acute symptoms of major depression are more concerning, a person might be suicidal, it, it's kind of put on the back burner and might not be diagnosed at all. Um, but also it's important to rule out medical conditions. So a patient may present with persistent symptoms of depression, but might have a an, an really large number, have a large number of medical conditions, uh, thyroid disorder, uh, anemia, some kind of chronic medical illness, which could even include uh, a neoplasm uh, or cardiac uh, failure. There's a lot of medical conditions that can present with low energy, fatigue, dysphoria, and so on. So obviously those, those need to be ruled out before determining that it's really a disorder of psychiatric etiology. Thank you. And just a quick question. You mentioned dysphoria. What exactly is dysphoria? Can you, can you explain? So... Dysphoria is um, it's not a 
specific term for persistent depressive disorder, but it's a it's a feeling of uh, sort of an unpleasant being in an unpleasant state, discomfort, sadness, uh, agitation. It's a it's a general kind of catch-all for unpleasant mood states. Okay, thank you. That's that's really helpful. Let's move on to management. Um, what's the mainstay of management of persistent depressive disorder? So there's really two main uh, things to consider for uh, management of persistent depressive disorder. And the first would be uh, psychotherapy approaches. And it's best to consider when using psychotherapy, using evidence-based psychotherapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy. Um, there's really never been a good study of psychodynamic therapy for dysthymia. It's, it's an interesting Psychodynamic therapy would be interesting to study, but it really hasn't been studied in good uh, good trials. My advice is always if, if someone does not want to go on medication, they should consider a trial of evidence-based therapy to help them uh, focus on improving their activities, thought processes, countering negative self-criticism and avoidance behavior. There's a lot of avoidance behavior seen in in dysthymia. So getting people to be activated is really important on the psychotherapy front. That said, the medication approach is probably most common in both medical, uh, primary care medical settings and psychiatric settings. And medication options would generally start with either something like an SSRI, relatively easily tolerated generic SSRI like escitalopram or uh, sertraline, or medication such as uh, bupropion, which is a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake uh, uh, inhibitor and is kind of more activating. So the SSRIs have the advantage of being uh, helpful for anxiety and fear kinds of st- symptoms. The uh, bupropion is helpful for uh, activation, improving concentration. So it can be a useful thing for a clinician to make a choice uh, in consult- consultation with a patient as far as which cluster of symptoms might be uh, worth focusing on early in treatment. But that said, either class of medicine is likely to be pretty effective in in persistent depressive disorder symptoms. Okay, thank you. And another quick question. You mentioned avoidance behavior. What exactly is that? And can you give us an example of that, please? So, you know, it's a really interesting and sort of under-recognized aspect of of, uh, persistent depressive disorder as well as many other psychiatric conditions like panic disorder, generalized anxiety, which is there's a high level of uh, what has been called harm avoidance, which is fear of taking normal risks in daily life. So it's not, oh, I don't want to jump out of a plane with a parachute. It's, I don't want to call this uh, person up for a date, or I'm, I'm, should I put my uh, job uh, application out there to, to you know, be in competition with others? It's fear of taking normal daily risks that are necessary to have a good life. And people with uh, persistent depressive disorder, even if they don't have major depression, um, their score in terms of harm avoidance is two standard deviations above that of the um, healthy, uh, unaffected population. So these are pretty fearful avoidant people. And so the psychotherapy uh, challenge for them is to get them to take more reasonable risks. So put your resume together, start submitting for job you know, applications, start act- asking this or that person out for a date, start reaching out to people for um, 
get-togethers or, or social events. And there's a, often a high level of fear of, of rejection that can impair um, functioning. And harm avoidance is associated with poor psychosocial functioning and work impairment and so on. So, And, and also people with persistent depression have more uh, often have high uh, rates of single status in terms of their marital status. So it seems to be persistently something that affects functioning across many domains. Okay, thank you. And moving back to to management and and drug treatment specifically, I'm guessing patients need to be on treatment for the longer term, or or is, is, is that right? So there's a unfortunate paucity of high quality evidence for uh, duration of treatment of persistent depression. The best evidence is from chronic major depressive disorder studies, which suggest that if someone has three or more episodes of major depression, they need lifetime antidepressant treatment for the most part. Uh, Persistent depression, there's just not the equivalent level of data. But what I usually tell people is take medication for a couple of years, and then uh, if you're wanting to come off medication, then do a gradual taper and, and see how things go. Um, unfortunately, there's just not good data to guide those choices. We, we did a small study and about a third of people were able to come off medication you know, with limited follow-up of a year or two without having return of symptoms. Most of the others needed to stay on, but it's, it's an evidence gap, unfortunately. Okay, thank you. And, and in, in terms of doses of medication, is that largely the same as for major depression? Um, it is generally the same dosage range. Um, the uh, one, one pitfall that we often see is that patients have been put on a low dose of an antidepressant um, by perhaps a primary care doctor or, or a psychiatrist, nurse practitioner, and left on it even if they have um, incomplete relief of symptoms. So I think the patient should really be the guide in terms of their symptom response, determining whether what dosage should be given. But in general, the same antidepressant dose needs to be used as for major depression. Okay, thank you. Let's stick with pitfalls. Uh, what other pitfalls are, are there in the management of this disorder? So the, the first pitfall would really be uh, ignoring the condition completely, which I've I mentioned before. The second would be under medication, um, if, if within this, in the setting of a lack of response uh, to a low dose or not switching or augmenting uh, treatment. And I guess a third would be um, continuing uh, ineffective psychotherapy and people often be attached to their therapist and they, say, they may say, well, I've learned a lot in therapy, but I'm still depressed. So I went into therapy because I was chronically depressed. I've learned a lot. And then 10 years later, I'm still depressed. So the use of evidence-based uh, therapy approaches or other or medication or other complementary uh, treatments may be helpful that to get the person into a more euthymic state of mind, and then probably they'll make more progress in their therapy if they're in a better state of mind. In terms of recent advances in management, I wonder, have there been any recent advances in management of this disorder? Well, the you know, psychiatry is in this really interesting um, transition from the DSM-based uh, paradigm of, of treatment to what I call the new neuroscience-based uh, paradigm. And so the, we're understanding the importance of uh, patterns of brain connectivity, brain circuitry, 
and kind of chronic states that people can find themselves in. And for instance, the new um, uh, hubbub around psychedelic drugs, which seem to perhaps have an effect on uh, chronic uh, brain circuit connectivity uh, being one example. But to me, the importance for daily management of people with persistent depression is the importance of things like exercise. Uh, Exercise increases levels of brain BDNF, brain drive neurotrophic factor, and other brain trophic factors, uh, the importance of relaxation, uh, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. And I think those are very much worth considering um, advocating for patients with persistent depression. The problem is we really do not have a super uh, rigorous evidence base for persistent depression. It's really more inferential from um, other studies of other conditions. But I think it's a logical thing to add for people who have chronic anxiety, chronic fear, chronic dysphoria, may have a lot of physical aches and pains to think about things of, of those sort of meditation, mindfulness, and so on, and exercise for sure, that can be things that can have a um, positive effect on mood. Last question, which is a question about questions. What other common questions do you get asked about this disorder? What have we missed? The most pressing question for a lot of people is, do I need to stay on medicine forever, which we kind of touched on a few moments ago. And I I really try to be straightforward that I don't have the answer that is pragmatic and that that discontinuation can be a reasonable uh, choice. There's often questions about, is it a family uh, link thing? Are my kids going to have this condition? And there's mixed data on that. Some studies suggest yes, some no. What I focus on with patients is really the importance of them trying to have the best outcome of their depression so they can be better uh, partners and parents because if they have higher level of functioning um, in their daily life, then they're likely to provide an environment that can be more healthy for their kids to grow up. There's definitely uh, strong evidence that uh, depressed parents, particularly depressed mothers, have an impact on kids uh, increasing their risk of depression. Okay. Thank you very much, David, and, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.